the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and the ushers will bring one to you so that you can follow along in our Bible study. We are in chapter 5. We made it as far as um, verse 8 last time, so that's where we will pick up tonight. Now, as you well know by now, the book of Ephesians breaks into three equal sections. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, we're told the wealth of the believer, all that is ours because of what Jesus Christ sacrificed on the cross for us. Then, in response to all that we already have been given and all that we are, chapters 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that therefore we ought to have a walk or a lifestyle that's worthy of the name that we've been given and the wealth that's been ascribed to our account. So the wealth in chapters 1 through 3, the walk in chapters 4 and 5, and in chapter 6, the warfare, the battle that we find ourselves in as we make our way through this earth. So in chapter 5, we're in the middle of the second section of Ephesians, the walk or the lifestyle of the Christian. And we can't forget as we look at these things, that it's always in a response. That the walk or the lifestyle that we're called into as Christians is always a response to what has been already accomplished on our behalf. We aren't earning God's favor by the way that we live or by our behavior. We've already been given God's favor because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're favored by God already. And it's from that position of God's favor that we are now called and empowered to live the life that He calls us to live. And as we look at these things, we we can never fall into the trap of of thinking that it's by our own strength or by our own effort uh, that, that we do these things. It's all because of Him and it's all through Him, the power to do it. So, In chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul told us that we're to be imitators of God as dear children or followers of God as dear children. And then he told us in verse 2 that in, you know, the first outflow of that imitation is that we're to walk in love. And then he uses Christ as an example and he describes for us what love is as defined through the person of Jesus Christ. Walk in love, he said. But as we pick up in verse 8, he tells us the next thing, and that is what we will look at tonight, and that is that we are to walk as children of light. In verse 8, we are told to walk as children of light. Now, it's not uncommon for the Bible to use metaphors to communicate spiritual truths to us. To take something that we clearly understand, in this case, light, and then uh, uh, use that to help us to better understand something that's invisible or untangible. In this case, our lifestyle as a believer. Light, we understand. We, We see it, we experience it, we understand something about it. You know, but the lifestyle or the walk of a Christian, how we're to live, that can sometimes be a little bit 
unclear to us. And so the metaphor of light is being used in a way to describe to us what he means, what it means to walk with the Lord, to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. And once we understand the metaphor, then we understand the biblical truth that's being painted for us. The Apostle John wrote to the, the Christian churches in 1 John, and he tells us there in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. You've heard that before. God is love. And in that God is love, and we are called to be imitators of God, the Apostle Paul told us there in verse 2 that we're to walk in love. Our lifestyle is to be a reflection of who God is. Now, the Apostle John also told the Christian churches in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light. God is light. And in verse 8, the Apostle Paul tells us, again, as imitators of God who is light, we are also then to reflect that by walking as children of light. So, in this instance, light, here in Ephesians 5.8, is being used as a metaphoric term to describe for us the character and the nature of God. What does it mean that God is light? And what does it mean to walk as children of light? What does light mean in a metaphorical sense? Well, physically, light in the Bible speaks of God's glory. The very first words that we read when we open the front cover of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then it says, And God said. The very first words that God spoke in the beginning of creation, And God said, Let there be light. The very first expression of who he is, the very first manifestation of himself in the creative act was to speak light into darkness, to reveal himself as light. We read of Moses when he would walk up onto the mountain and receive the law of God or the instructions from God for the tabernacle that was below, that after Moses spent time in the presence of the Lord, Returning back down and being in the midst of the people, it says that his face was shining so brightly that the people couldn't stand to look at him because of the brightness of the, the, the shine upon his face because he had been in the presence of perfect light, the glory of God. We see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples and it tells us that as they were there, it says that he was transfigured before them and Everything that was on the inside of his person tore through the veil of his flesh and the light was brighter than the noonday sun. It describes the glory of who he was internally as it was peeled back before his disciples and they saw the essence of his being, the light of his glory, and it was too bright for them to behold. And of course, when we read the book of Revelation and we see the new Jerusalem, our eternal habitation descending from God. It tells us there in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, it said, For the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. 
For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. So great is the essence of the light that comes from God, who is light, that there is no need for any other source of light than God himself. And so biblically, light, physically, in a physical sense, speaks of the glory of God. Now morally, light in the Bible speaks of God's holiness. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is a light, and reproofs of instruction are the way or the path of life. So in other words, there's a path in the command of God, the moral law that God gives is a light to our feet. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 The prophet Isaiah, in his early fiery days as a young man, he said, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And he uses darkness and light as a metaphorical uh, example to describe or illustrate the concept of good and evil. Those that call good evil and evil good put light for darkness and darkness for light. Again, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, when he gives the description of God as light in verse 5, the Apostle writes and he says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you. That God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all Sin, using the distinction between darkness and light as an example for what it means to walk according to God's moral standard. And so morally, light speaks of God's holiness. Now intellectually, light speaks of God's knowledge. Psalm chapter 43 verse 3 says, Oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. Psalm 119, verse 130, it says, The entrance of thy word giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. And so, as we read the word of God, as we understand his testimonies and allow it to be the renewing of our mind, our intellect is enlightened as we come into a knowledge of God's ways, God's wisdom, and God's person. And so, light intellectually speaks of God's knowledge. So, Paul takes this metaphoric description of God as light, and now he's going to apply that to our walk. He's taking God as light and he's putting it and inserting that concept now into the reflection that we bring as we walk with the Lord. And he's going to tell us that we're to walk in the light. If you notice with me there in verse 8. He says, for you were sometimes darkness. Or you might have, for you were once darkness. Now, it's interesting to me that he does not say that you were once in darkness. 
He says, you once were darkness. If you just glance really quickly at verse 7, right above it, when he says, be not therefore partakers with them, that is, he's speaking there of the children of darkness, he's saying that you were once one with them. That you had fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And so therefore, it isn't that you were just in darkness, that you actually were pretty good, or you had some decent moral fiber, but you were in a bad place, raised in a bad neighborhood or something. But he's saying that you were darkness. You were absent from the glory of God, completely alienated, separated from it. You were alienated from his morality. You weren't subject to it. You weren't looking for it. It wasn't the desire of your heart to do things God's way. You lived in such a way where you lived to satisfy the desires of your flesh. And that's what drove you. You were separated from the light of God's moral command. And you were ignorant of his knowledge that where you were before you came to Christ was in a situation that the Bible calls lost. And in darkness, you were separated from the life of God and from the light of the world. You were sometimes darkness. But now, he says, are ye light in the Lord. You are light. Now, he's talking about where we stand with the Lord positionally. Wherein we once were darkness and hence we were in darkness. He says, now you are partakers of his light. That is, you experience, you can taste His glory. You're empowered by His Holy Spirit to live according to the morality that God gives to us in the Bible. And that you're enlightened towards His truth. What was once something that was silliness to you, the Bible, you would read it and it seemed like fables and things that, that, that were you know, alienated from, from who you were and from what real life is. But now you read them and they resonate with your soul and it's as though someone turned on a light inside your mind and you can understand the things that the Bible says. Because you were once darkness, but now you're enlightened towards His truth. And so as believers in Christ, as those that have been bought by the blood, we are positionally seated in Christ and therefore we are now in the light. We were once darkness But he says, but now you are children of light. That's where we stand positionally. Now there can be a difference between where we abide positionally and where we walk practically. We're children of light and so positionally we're in the light. We're in Christ. But sometimes our behavior or our lifestyle can reflect a completely different set of standards. We can be walking perhaps in the shadows or in darkness, even though positionally we are placed in the light through Christ. And so he tells us there at the conclusion of verse 8, he says, walk as children of light. Positionally, you're in Christ and therefore you're in the light, but now let it be played out in the way that you live your life. Walk as children of light. The word walk there in the Greek, the definition is to make one's way or to conduct one's self. So the way that we make our way in this world and the way that we conduct ourselves as we wait for the Lord to return is that we are to do it as those that are a reflection of God's light. So if we take our lives, what Paul is calling our walk, and we plug it into the medical 
metaphorical meaning of God as light, as we've described, then what does it mean? What does it mean for us to walk in the light? Well, if light physically speaks of God's glory, then for us to walk in the light means that we live our lives for God's glory. That we live our lives in such a way that our aim, that our desire is to please God. That's what we want. We want our lives to glorify Him so that our behavior, the things that we say, the things that we do, our attitudes and our actions, our motives, that all of those things reflect the glory of God. They bring glory to His name. Jesus said, let them see the good works that you do, that they may glorify your Father in heaven, because the way we behave has the ability to bring glory to the Father. Jesus said that this is the will of God for you, that you bear much fruit. Herein is my Father glorified. He said that you bear much fruit. And so the way that we live and the decisions that we make have the potential to either bring God glory or to bring God shame or perhaps maybe just a complete neutrality where it neither gives God glory nor God shame. But Paul is saying that walk as children of light means that we're to live in such a way as that our aim is to bring God glory with our lives. To walk in the light morally, if light has a moral application, then to walk in the light morally means that our moral character is a reflection of God's will and God's ways. He told us that we were once darkness, meaning that our moral compass was in the dark. It was absent from God, but that now we are light in the Lord. And so if we were once darkness and now we are light and our moral compass is to be governed by the fact that we are in God's moral light, then what that means is that as Christians, we're not to lead a double life. We're not to be one thing when we come to church. You've all heard of Christian ease, right? It's the language that is used exclusively by Christians around the world. Everyone on the planet speaks Christianese. We use phrases like, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen, brother. God, to God be the glory today, you know. And when we say all of these things, now, we don't talk like that when we go to work. You know, you walk in in the morning, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. They all look at you like, what in the, what happened to that guy, you know. Because, because there's a difference. We understand that, but sometimes there's a difference that runs deeper than just the way that we talk, the phrases that we use in church. We have one set of rules and behavior that we uh, adhere to when we're around other Christians. But then we live a completely different way when we're not around Christians, when we're in the world. We're something else. And he's saying that we're to walk and live our lifestyle outside of the church as those that are children of light, not children of darkness. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, and he said, What communion hath light with darkness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? The two things are mutually exclusive. You cannot have a greater contrast than darkness and light. Because if something is dark, then it is not light. And if it is light, then it is not dark. And he said that there is no communion, no meeting place between the two. That they are distinct and separate. And he says, therefore, our lives as those that are blood-bought and belonging to Jesus Christ is that we're to walk as children of light. We're to be the same thing 
when we're around one another as we are when we aren't. We're to walk in the light. So to walk in the light morally means that our lives are are, are a reflection of His ways, of His will, His directions, His commands. To walk in the light concerning God's knowledge, it means that we conduct our lives in a way that we live according to what we know. If light intellectually speaks of God's knowledge, then for us to walk in the light of God's intellect is to just simply live what we know. There are many people that know a lot of things about God. They know a lot of things about the Bible, a lot of things about the church and about ministry. And somehow they think that because they know those things, that automatically that means that they do them. But that's not always true. We get the idea that the prophet Ezekiel had a very uh, poetic way of speaking. That the people would love to hear him talk. He was a gifted orator. And the Lord speaks to him in chapter 33, uh, verse 30. The Lord speaks to Ezekiel and he says, Also thou son of man, he says, The children of thy people are still talking against thee or about thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people. And they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For they with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. Interesting, isn't it? But the Lord tells us through the Apostle James that it isn't the people that hear the word of God that can come to an intellectual understanding of what it says and what it means. It isn't the hearers that will be blessed, but it's them that do them. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that famous sermon that Jesus gave at the beginning of his ministry, he said, them that hear my words but don't do them are like those that build a house upon sand. When the storms of life come, when the rains and the winds beat against it and the waters rise up, the house will be swept away because there's no foundation to hold it sturdy in its place. But they that are doers of the word... Not just hearers only, deceiving themselves, but those that hear the word of God and then let it sink into their heart and assimilate with their lifestyle and what they do and how they behave. He says that they will be like those that build their house upon a rock. That there's a foundation they've dug, they've checked the ground, and and they've secured the foundation of their lives in the ways of the Lord so that when the storms come, when the rains beat against it, the trials and the downcast seasons, when the waters rise up, then that house will stand, that life will stand because it's built upon a rock. And he equates that not to those that hear the word and understand it mentally, but those that let it come out in the way that they live their lives. It's reflection of their life. So to walk in the light concerning the intellect that God gives to us is to not simply know what God tells us, but to do what God tells us. And Paul tells us that we're to walk as children of light, to live according to what we know. 
Well, he goes on in verses 9 through 14, and he tells us three things that we must know about what it means to walk in the light. And the first thing he tells us there in verse 9 is that the path of light leads to a fruitful life. Verse 9, he says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Now, if you have an NIV here tonight, you may have the word there in verse 9. It says, for the fruit of the light. And there are some manuscripts from which uh, the Bible was translated that actually use that word light and not that word spirit there. And I think it's a better translation. In the context of what Paul is saying, he's saying that we're to walk in the light. And then he tells us that the fruit of the light is in all goodness. In other words, the fruitfulness that will come out of a life that is chose or that is founded on living and walking in the light he says that the fruit of the light is in all goodness and righteousness and truth the goodness there speaks of course of god's glory the righteousness of his morality and the truth concerning god's knowledge and what he's saying to us is that if you want to live a fruitful and a productive life then walk in the light. Because the fruit of the light is going to be goodness and righteousness and truth. And those are things that will lead to blessing and fruit within your lives. He goes on in verse 10 to tell us that if we desire to walk in the light, that it requires that we must be discerning. Notice with me in verse 10. He says, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Now, the word proving there means to test the quality. It gives the idea of somebody who finds a a, a chunk of gold, you know, as they're digging or something, and they're going to prove the quality, the value of that gold, and so they're going to put it in the fire, and they're going to test it. They're going to see how it withstands against the heat to prove out the purity of it. Sometimes the way to do that with certain things is to shine bright light on it. We do that with ourselves in the morning. You know, you get out of bed and you think, oh, wow, I look pretty good as you look in the dark room mirror. But then you turn the light on and you get those 470-watt bulbs on the vanity and they hit your face. And the shadows are cast. And the imperfections and blemishes are brought forward. And you're like, whoa, you know. And and all of a sudden, the light has proven what is true about you and about me, you know, that we're, we're not that attractive, you know. He says, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Now, how do we do that when we're speaking of the way that we're walking, the choices we're making, the decisions and the behaviors that we're embracing? What does it mean to prove what is acceptable to the Lord? How do we do it? We do it by bringing those things into the light of God's knowledge, of God's glory, and God's word, God's morality. And seeing if it withstands the test of what he would call light. Does this decision that I'm making, does this behavior I am embracing, does this action that I am doing, does it bring glory to God? Or does it bring glory or pleasure to me, but it is an offense to God? Does this line up with the moral standard of Scripture and what God tells us? Can I... 
Can, can, the entrance of thy word giveth light. Can I take what I'm doing or what I'm desiring or what I'm willing or how I'm living and weigh it against what the Bible says and will it stand up? Does it, is this acceptable unto the Lord? Does this withstand the test of his moral light? And is this in line with the principles of scripture, the truths of God? And he tells us that we're to prove what is acceptable. Those things, those areas of our lives where there's a question mark or where there's an asterisk or where there's you know, some shadiness or maybe some embarrassment about us. If we bring those things into God's light, will God give us the thumbs up and say, yeah, go for it. That's it. You're in. Good. Or will God give it the thumbs down and say, it's not acceptable. That's dark behavior. It isn't right. The writer of Hebrews, I love the way he writes this in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. He says this, he says, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And you are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. And you're probably not going to get it because I don't have it here, but it's actually verse 14 that you need to see. It says, But strong meat belongs to them who are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. He's giving them, the Hebrew Christians, an indictment. He's bringing upon them an accusation. He's saying, listen, you've been Christians a long time. And for the amount of time that you have been Christians, you should be in a place in your Christian walk where you're teaching others. Where you've dissected and digested the concepts and the principles of God's word to such a degree that you should be able to lead other people in this walk, in this life. But you're not there. You're in a place of suspended infancy. You're immature. You, you lack the, the, the spiritual maturity and wisdom to be able to lead other people. And, and then he compares the Word of God and the knowledge of God's Word and the exercise of God's Word within a life to milk and meat. And he says that a baby Christian is one who just understands milk. The simple, elementary, fundamental things of the Christian faith. You know what baptism is. You know what it means to be born again. You understand the resurrection. All of these simple concepts, these spiritual elementaries. But he says that strong meat, the meat of the word, the depth of who God is, the character and nature of him that's revealed, the behavior that's acceptable to him, the meat of the word, these things that go beyond the early things. He says, strong meat belongs to them that are of full age. And he says, this is the advantage for those people. That they have had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In other words, there's more of the word of God is processed in your life and then practiced in your behavior and in your lifestyle, the more you will exercise your senses to be able to prove what is good and what is acceptable unto the Lord. I remember one time I I heard a a young Christian went to an older pastor and he said to the older pastor, he said, you know what I think what the greatest thing in all of life would be? To go through the whole Bible. And the older pastor just gave a, a wise you know, smile and a chuckle and he looked at the young man and he said, do 
you know what's even better than that, young man? And he said, what? He said, to let the whole Bible go through you. And see, the more we allow the Word of God and the ways of God and the life of God, the Spirit of God to move within our lives and to conform us into the image of Christ, and as we prove out what's acceptable and then yield to what He says, it sharpens us to be able to prove what is acceptable unto the Lord. And if we want to walk in the light then it requires that we be those that are discerning about the behaviors and the things that people do. Because there's a lot of things in the world today that are unacceptable to the Lord, but because there's no scripture that says, you shall not do this thing, people say, well, then that's acceptable unto the Lord. And I would say that if you would hold those things under the light of God's word and allow his word to exercise your senses, many of those things you would find that they're not acceptable to God. They're a breach upon his character and a blight upon his name and they don't bring glory to him. So he tells us that if we desire to walk in the light, it requires that we exercise discernment. The third thing in verse 11 that he tells us about walking in the light is that sometimes it means that we have to say no to ourselves. Sometimes we have to say no. Look at verse 11. He says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Have no fellowship with the un... The word fellowship means common ground or oneness. Fellowship, it it gives you this idea of being knit together with something. And he's saying, have no common ground with something that is considered or proven to be darkness. If something is proven unacceptable, then don't find common ground. Somebody said one time that to live a life of holiness means that sometimes I have to say no 10,000 times in a day. To live a life of holiness, it means I have to say no 10,000 times in a day. And he tells us here that we're to have no fellowship, to find no common ground with something that is proven to be dark but rather were to reprove it. And you ask the question and you say, well, how? How do you do that? How, how practically do I break fellowship with something that I find, or, or let's say it's someone, and I find that their company or their fellowship is, is actually bringing me down. It's, it's causing me to walk in a way that the Bible would call dark. Well, how do I break that fellowship? Well, the answer is given Uh, right here, it's very simple actually, if you want to break fellowship with darkness, all you have to do is bring it into the light. It's something that happens automatically, whether it's behavior, or whether it's a relationship, or whatever it is, if it's something that's in darkness, as soon as you bring it into the light, it will either be approved by the light, or it will automatically be broken and separated as you come into the light. Look at what he says there at the end of the verse. He says, but rather reprove them or expose them. For it is a shame, verse 12, even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. He says, but all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. He's simply saying that if you want to break fellowship with something that's considered to be darkness, then simply bring it into the light and expose it for what it is. 
make a distinction between what is right and what is wrong, between what is dark and what is light, between what is holy and what is profane. And what will happen when you do that is that separation will happen very naturally. You walk into a room where people are having a discussion that is obviously profane. And you say, you know, that's wrong. That doesn't, that violates God's moral, moral word. That, that doesn't bring glory to God. This conversation is darkness. It promotes a profane life. Well, guess what happens? What you just did, you just turned the light on in that room. And the light is going to expose the conversation and the company for all that it is. When the light is shined, those people are either going to say, yeah, you know what, you're right. This doesn't bring glory to God. That's probably not going to happen. Or they're going to say, what's wrong with you? And they will separate from your company. Yes, you will, you will probably <coughs> excuse me, endure a little bit of persecution. Yes, they're going to make fun of you. They're going to call you a holy roller. But what you've done is you've just exposed the darkness and you've brought it into the light and you've caused separation between what is right and what is wrong, what is holy and what is profane. You've all heard of this new movement within the church. It's actually not even that new anymore, but this whole concept of being seeker-sensitive or seeker-friendly. That someone might come into church that is a seeker, that is looking for the things of God, and that we don't want to offend them. We don't want to use words like sin. We don't want to talk about what is right and what is wrong. We, we don't want to label certain lifestyles or certain behavior because what we might be doing is we might actually offend the seeker as they come in. The Bible knows nothing of this. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that there is none that seek God. There are none that do good. It isn't us that seek God. It's God that seeks after us. And there's no greater way to illustrate the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian than by using this concept of darkness and light. And what that seeker-sensitive movement has done is it has blurred the line between what is dark and what is light. And it has sent a very confusing message and it has shaded the concepts of Scripture. Someone will say, well, didn't Jesus hang with sinners? Wasn't that the Jesus style of ministry is that he kind of lived in places with dark people, that he had communion with darkness so as to bring people into the light? No, that's not what it says about Jesus. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, and this is a verse that you're all familiar with. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But then he goes on, and he says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth, or desires truth, cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. 
Jesus did not come to this earth and shroud himself in darkness and live in ways of darkness so as to draw people out and then to shine the light upon their lives. The Bible says that he was light. And in him is no darkness at all. And there was no greater distinction made between what is dark and what is light than in the person and in the life of Christ. And he does not say that you live in darkness. Put on provocative clothing, young woman, and go and flirt with that man and see if you can bring him to church. Or go into a bar and order a seltzer water and sit there and fellowship with those people, and then at the opportune time say, hey, by the way, have you ever thought about your eternity? He says simply, let the light of the world shine through your life, and those that desire to be in the light, they will come to you. They will come to the light. That's what Jesus says, that they, they don't come to the light because they don't want their deeds to be reproved, but him that desires truth will come into the light as the Spirit of God illuminates. So he says, don't find common darkness with someone, but rather have no fellowship with the things. It's a shame even to speak of them, but rather shine as lights in the world. And those that love darkness will reject the message that you bring and the light that you shine. But those that desire truth will come and listen. And that's why he says in verse 14, back in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light now the interesting thing is that you know it sounds as though he's quoting a verse here but there is no verse that is quoted you know verbatim for what paul is saying but what he's most likely referring to is the first three verses of isaiah chapter 60 and notice well you'll see it on the screen what isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 through 3 says it says arise shine For thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that he tells us that if you want to see the Gentiles come to faith in Christ, the Gentiles speak of those in context, those that don't know the Lord, those that are in darkness, those that are alienated from his life. And he is saying that if you desire to see the Gentiles come to the light, then the way to do that is for you to walk in the light. To let the light of God's glory be upon your life that you're living in a way that you desire and aim to please Him, to bring Him glory. That morally your life is in line with His commands and what He wants and you're allowing His light to govern and direct your path. The light of God's knowledge and God's Word is the, is the lifeblood, the food of your soul and what makes you live. And He says that when you live that way that the Gentiles will come to your light. And Paul, picking up on this, says, Wherefore he saith, most likely quoting Isaiah, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. And so Paul tells the church at Ephesus, he says, Walk in the light. We're to walk as children of the light, because God is light, therefore we are to walk as children of the light. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he tells us as imitators of God that we are to walk as children of the light. We'll we'll pause there because the next section, Walk in Wisdom, is rich enough that I don't want to talk like I'm giving an auction in order to uh, try to get through it and still not feel condemned all week that I ran long. But, But I really believe that where we are in the Word, in looking at this message, is very close to where we are in the world. There's very few times that a message that we hear as we go line upon line is so fitting with where we are at as a society and really where we are globally as when we listen to a word like this. I really believe that the time is short. As we look at the things that are taking place prophetically uh, on the global scale and we realize uh, just how close Things are coming together to what the Bible says is going to be the domino effect that that will bring us. Really, what I believe Jesus meant when he said, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, when he said, I've come to show you the things which must shortly or quickly come to pass. Meaning that once they start, it's just going to happen so quickly, you know. And as we hear the tensions with Iran and, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu was here in, in the country just over the past couple of days saying, listen, we love you, United States of America, but we are, we are ready to act alone if you're not going to do anything to physically interrupt the nuclear program in Iran. And we've heard their response and we just see this kettle boiling over and the times that we live in are so perilous. And, and, and we see that on a prophetic scale. The instability globally. Jesus said that one of the signs would be these birth pains. These labor pains that would be coming upon the world. And you know the concept, I remember, George, I I can't say, I remember having children, but I was there, you know. And the thing that happens with the labor pains is that, you know, they kind of start off, they're, they're, they're ten minutes apart, you can catch your breath, you know. You have one, you're like, oh, okay, okay. And then you almost think like, ah, nothing's happening, you know. But then the next one comes. And you're, but what happens with labor pains is that they get to a point where they're so concentrated that you don't have time to even recover from the previous one before the next one is coming upon you. And isn't that what we see going on in the, the geographical things that Jesus said? The, the obscure weather things, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the earthquakes. I mean, it's so devastating and it's happening so quickly. It's exactly what he said. And even the way that I feel internally, and I don't know about you, but the second coming of Christ has never been more real. I mean, I was teaching prophecy in 2003. And I used to think, man, if we make it to 2008, I'll be surprised, you know. And yet here we are in 2012, and yet there's something that's stirring up even inside of me that, that whereas it used to be like this thing wherein, Lord, come, and it was like, wow, the trumpet, the rapture, the glory, you know, now it's like, oh, Lord, am I ready? Really, I mean, if the trumpet came right now, everything will be exposed. Everything is sealed and done. And am I really ready for that? Every motive, every word, every behavior, every action, all of it's going to be uncovered and it's done in that instant. And am I really ready for it? And it's never been more real to me than it is right now. And church, I believe what the Lord would say to us tonight is that this is not the time for us to be walking in darkness. 
It may well be that you're positioned in the light. Your salvation may be secure. But are you walking as children of light? Don't be caught off guard that that day should overtake you as a thief. The Bible tells us the importance of receiving Christ as Lord. In John chapter 1, it tells us that Jesus came and it says that he came to his own and that his own received him not. And we understand the Jews, they rejected him. But he says in chapter 1, verse 12 of John's gospel, he says, But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the children of God. And it's what we call being born again, or what it means that we say when we're saved, is that we've received Christ. And I hope you understand what that means, because what it means is that there is a transaction that has to happen between each individual person and the Lord Himself. That it isn't just this blanket thing of that, okay, well, I started coming to church or I've made some moral adjustments to my behavior and so I'm hoping that God will accept me on those terms or assuming that because we go to church or because we've changed certain things that all of a sudden that makes us saved. Listen, there is a transaction that must take place. That's what makes us saved. If you want a driver's license, then that means you have to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles. And you have to fill out the form and give the information. And then you, you, know, you pay them what they want. And then as that transaction is taking place and your information is being processed, then you are given the documents or the licenses or whatever it is that you're seeking. And that transaction is what makes it legal for you to then go and drive the car or you know, drive any car if it's a, a license. We understand that, that whole concept of a transaction. Salvation is a transaction. It's something that happens between you and the Lord where your sin is transferred onto Him and His innocence is transferred onto you. And that doesn't happen in secret or in some thing. There, there is a transaction that has to happen. Yes, it's invisible. Yes, it's paperless. Yes, it's free. You don't have to pay a fee or anything. All of that is true, but it doesn't negate the fact that the transaction still has to happen. You have to apply. Now, the terms for this transaction are told to us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul says this, he says, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. It's a very simple formula. It's given to us in one verse. But yet, if you were to take the terms of that transaction and translate them into a long-form document that you would fill out, let's say at the DMV or online for something, it would really be a little bit longer than we make it. The first section, it would say personal information. The first part of that verse, which I notice is not there on the screen, and it's supposed to be, which is really killing this whole illustration. But <laughs> Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it begins with saying, it, it, you know, the words that if you... And so the first thing... All right. The first ingredient there is, is if you, and so it's personal information. And so if you were filling this out and you were actually transacting this between heaven and earth, the first thing would be all your personal information. 
your name, your date of birth, your place of birth, your social security number, your credit card information, everything about you, including every sin that you've ever committed, it would all be somewhere in that section that you're filling out. The entire contents of your mind, it would say, please attach the flash drive that represents your thoughts. Every image that has ever gone in your mind, every ambition, every motive, everything that makes you, you, must be included in this section and all fields are required. If you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or that is, that Jesus is Lord, and that is that you are understanding, you are checking yes next to the box, that you are agreeing to transfer ownership of Everything that represents you to his name. He becomes the power of attorney of your life. It is no longer yours. You have been bought with a price. You are calling him Lord. And so if you're calling him Lord, then that means that there is nothing that he is not sovereign over. Every field, that is every category of your life, it must be checked. Can I have this area? 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 And, 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 and it's just a will. Are you willing to give me lordship in every area of this life? Yes. And all fields are required and answer is required. To call Jesus Lord. That would be personal information. Section 2 on this document would be the conditions. The conditions for acceptance. You're applying for salvation. So the conditions for you to be accepted are that you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now that's easy for us to think about something that happened 2,000 years ago that is substantiated by the fact that there are a couple of hundred people each week that come to church that make this profession. Well, we can kind of fall into this profession, but really, do you believe that a man was crucified, put in a tomb, and three days later, he was not hidden, the tomb was not empty, but he rose from the dead, and that he is alive even to this day. Now, you are allowed to consider the evidence that's given through creation, to consider the evidence that's given through prophecy, and the evidence that's presented historically of the fact that Jesus rose. You are allowed to consider all of that evidence, but you must come to the conclusion in your heart that, yes, I believe that God raised Christ from the dead. Now, after looking and saying, yes, you know what? I do. I believe. Before the signature... Or, you know, if you're doing this online, it would be the uh, submit button. Before you get to that point, there's this little section there that's called the waiver. And you read this waiver and it would say this. It would say, after examining the contents of your mind and after reviewing all of the sins that are listed there, if Jesus is willing to take punishment for all of your sins, your application for salvation will be accepted. And if he does, then he will personally move into your body and he will begin to kill your present nature and transform your mind and your will to be like his. And this will be the evidence that he has accepted your request. If you agree to these terms, then click accept below and your application will be processed. Please allow one to two seconds for a reply. Now, there has never been a person 
in all of history that has been denied salvation on these terms. And that is the good news. Is that there is not a person anywhere on the planet that will be denied if they come to him on those terms for salvation, no matter what, no matter what is written in the sin section or no matter what is found on that flash drive which exposes the contents of the mind. Nothing, nothing will keep him from accepting you and saving you. However, if there are empty fields in the personal information section or if there is a denial on your part to make him Lord in your life, then your application will be returned. Because these are the terms and conditions of God's salvation. Simple enough that it can be phrased in one verse. And yet comprehensive so. That if you're not willing to meet those terms, then you do not have the right, as John says, to be called the children of God. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Have you made that transaction? Listen, again, it's not paper. It's not something that you fill out online. It's something between you and God. But have you done it? Because what I find is that there's many people that believe that because they were raised in the church, that somehow that just assimilates them into this group called Christians. Or for others, they they were brought to church, perhaps by their spouse later in life. And as they came and they heard, they slowly assimilated Christian values and, and ascribed to themselves that name. But they've never made that transaction. And if that's you here tonight, listen, I'm telling you, the time is short. I hope you know that you're saved. I hope that you have committed your life to Christ. Perhaps there's some here for the first time and you've never known what it means to be saved. Listen, I'm telling you right now. The time is short. And God, in his love, willingly became a man, lived a perfect life, and took the punishment for every sin that was ever committed. And he is willing to lift away the guilt and the penalty of what you deserve and transfer to you the innocence that he rightly bought with his life. But it requires... That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And that you believe by faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He will not deny you. But do not miss your opportunity to receive the greatest gift that has ever been given in all of the universe. The grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. And we pray that you would Allow us to be children of the light. I pray for any that are here tonight that don't yet know you in that way. That they are still darkness. They're still walking in moral bondage. And they don't know the life and the love that you alone can give. I pray tonight, Lord, that you would move in their hearts, that they wouldn't harden their hearts. That they wouldn't be able to make excuses or Just sing the mantra of the world and say, well, that's all a fable. Or that's your truth. But they would come to a saving knowledge of you, Lord Jesus. And I pray for the rest of us, Lord, that we would not positionally sit satisfied in the light and yet have areas of our life that are so completely dark that we're ashamed of them. We'd never talk about them in church. 
I pray that you would give us light, Lord. That we would awake if we're asleep and that we'd rise from the dead and that Christ would give us light. Please, Father, we just pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us a fresh filling with your spirit and urgency of the day. We just thank you so much for teaching us these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.